Well, hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? You want the good news or the bad news? Good news. I heard good news. Okay, so here's the good news. Um, I'm going to finish preaching by 10.15, so you're going to get out of here a couple minutes early. Good news, right? I've got to get to Grand Haven for the 10 o'clock, then back here for the 11 o'clock. Cal's family is down with COVID. His kids are sick. They've been running fevers for over a week. And so this plan of getting back and forth to campuses, it works as long as the roads are clear, all right? So we'll see how it works today, but I will be out of here by 10.15. So that's your good news. You're going to get out a couple minutes early. Bad news. I got a lot to say between then and now, so I'm going to talk fast. You're going to listen fast, and uh, we're going to see what God's Word has for us. So I'm going to have you do this. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Daniel, and uh, we will get there. We are in a series. This is actually the last week of teaching on um, this, in this series called Christian Worldview. Next week, we're going to have a question and answer kind of try to respond to as many of your questions as we can regarding the things that we have talked about in this series. And I'm thinking that today we'll raise a lot of questions. And uh, we are talking about Christian worldview, a biblical lens in how we view our world, our culture, and we've been contrasting that all fall with what we call secular humanism or expressive individualism, uh, the worldview that our culture has embraced. And let me just cut to the chase. When I talk about secular humanism or expressive individualism, those are just fancy terms for selfishness. Just selfish. And and as our culture has become more and more selfish, it creates conflict between our culture's worldview and a biblical worldview. This selfishness, this secular humanism, has literally invaded every area of our lives It's impacting our families, it's impacting our churches, it's impacting our schools, it's impacting the way that we view our jobs, our careers, it impacts the way that we view sex, how we view gender. It literally invades every aspect of our culture. And the question that we've been asking throughout this series is really a simple one. Is secular humanism working? Are we happier? Has we've embraced selfishness, is it making us better people? Is it helping our culture? Are we becoming more civilized? Sadly, submission to authority has been replaced by criticism of authority. And this is true in any type of relationship. You can see it in the relationship between children and parents. You can see it between workers and their bosses, between students and their teachers, between players and their coaches. It's literally everywhere in our culture. It's modeled for us every time we turn on social media, people complaining about authorities. It's modeled for us in our major news outlets. If you watch CNN when there's a Republican president, or if you watch Fox News when there's a Democratic Democratic president, 24-7 critique of authority. And this morning, as we conclude this series, we're looking at this last kind of topic where a biblical worldview intersects with secular humanism as it relates to government. And again, we're going to ask the question, is this working? First of all, let me say this. I love my country. And there's nowhere else that I would rather live. And even as I preach this message, I am fully aware that men have died. Families have given great sacrifice for our freedoms to protect our freedoms and the liberties that we sometimes enjoy without even focusing on the cost that was paid to secure those liberties. Our nation was founded 
on the principle that all of us have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are what we refer to as inalienable rights. And our founders understood and wrote extensively that for any republic or democracy to survive, for any government by the people and for the people to last, it had to be built on a foundation of morality and what they called civil virtue. And some of you might not be familiar with that phrase, but that idea of civil virtue is basically just this, the willingness to lay aside self-interest for the common good. That the elected officials would value the needs of the people they represent more than serve their own self-interest. And sadly, when secular humanism invades our government, civil virtue is lost. When elected officials and their decision-making process is based off what will get them elected rather than than what is fair, what will keep them in office or get them re-elected rather than what is right, when They have to consider what will gain power for their political party rather than represent their people well. When what is popular drives their decisions more than what is wise, what is prudent, what is moral. The other side of that is when as citizens we vote based off our own self-interests, what will keep our taxes low, what will make life more comfortable. The, the, the bigger issues, the bigger crises facing our country, things like national debt and unfair treatment, all of those things go to the wayside as long as we're made comfortable when self-interest motivates our vote. What happens is freedoms become trampled. They become lost. Hey, here's a question. Has our demand for personal freedom... Has the selfishness of secular humanism that we can do whatever we want and nobody can tell us what to do, has has this virtue that we've made the ultimate virtue, protecting people's rights to pursue happiness along whatever path they choose, has it actually led to more freedom? It's interesting, just one stat this week. We've had a lot of stats in this series. I'm only going to give you one this week. One stat, USA Today released the results of a Harris poll And this may surprise you, but it said this. It found that 92% of Americans, 92% of Americans think that their personal freedoms, liberties, and rights are under siege. 92%. I don't mean this wrong. That might be the only thing that Americans can agree on right now. Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, lower class, middle class, upper class can't agree on anything except this thing. 92% would say that their rights are under siege. Here's the kicker with that stat. That poll was conducted in December 19, 2019, pre-pandemic. No executive orders, no mandates, no you need to stay closed, no mask mandates, no vaccine mandates. If it was 92% in 2019, pre-pandemic, what's that percentage today? See, see, like all of us understand the personal liberty in our culture today. We're concerned about it. It's under siege. Our freedoms are being eroded. But how in the world can that be happening at the very same time all of us are laying hold or our culture is laying hold to this idea of secular humanism? Unchecked selfishness does not lead to increased liberty. It leads to anarchy and bondage. And our country's leaders and our founding fathers, they knew this all too well. They saw this coming. The pursuit of happiness without a foundation of morality and a concern for the common good 
only leads to brokenness. Benjamin Franklin said it this way. He said, nothing brings more pain than too much pleasure, nothing more bondage than too much liberty. James Madison wrote, liberty may be endangered by the abuses of liberty as well as the abuses of power. Theodore Roosevelt said, no people has ever yet benefited by riches if their prosperity corrupts their virtue. And General MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, he said this. It's interesting. He says, history fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has been either a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to ultimate national disaster. We're coming to a kind of a, a key moment in this series. We, we've, we've looked at the um, battle between a biblical worldview and secular humanism. We've looked at secular humanism asking the question, is it working? And we can declare resoundingly, no, it's not giving us the happiness and the joy that it promised. And, and now we come to this question. So as followers of Jesus Christ, understanding that there is a conflict, how do we respond? How do we respond? Do we just give in to the selfishness? Do we demand our own way? Do we protest? Do we rebel? Do we withdraw? Do we just go all Amish? Is that the right response? What, what would the Bible say? How should we respond when we're forced to live in a culture that is wicked and evil? How do we do that? I wish there was a place in the Bible we could go. Do you think, wouldn't it be great if God had kind of thought about this ahead of time and given us some passages that we could look at that deal with the exact problem that we're facing today? Hey, good news, he did. Daniel 1. Big idea this morning is this. Big idea is this, if you're keeping notes. Who is at the center of your convictions? Who is at the center of your convictions? And I would argue this, the message, this is kind of a thesis. Against the darkness of selfishness, the best light, the best light is selflessness. Daniel 1, we're going to study one man. Over the course of a few chapters, he will influence two kingdoms and two kings because of the choices that he makes, the convictions that he forms, and the way that he protests. So from Daniel 1, again, if you're keeping notes, how to survive conflict, here's the first one, form a conviction. Now, you need to understand when I say conviction, we all have convictions. We all have opinions. A, a, a conviction is something that is worth standing for. It, it's something that you say, this is something that by conscience I will not violate. Convictions are important. We all have convictions. The first thing that we're going to see is that Daniel forms a conviction in Daniel 1. It says this in the first verse. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. So Babylon is the world power of the day. The northern kingdom has already fallen to Assyria. Now the, now the last stand of God's people, the nation of Judah, is being besieged. It's going to fall to the nation of Babylon, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar does something really interesting. As he besieges Jerusalem, as the city begins to fall, he takes the artifacts that are in the temple that are designed for the worship of Jehovah God, the God of the nation of Israel, and he places them in the temple to his gods. He's making a point. 
He's arguing that the gods of Babylon are greater than the gods of Israel. The only thing that he misses in the story is the first four words in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the Lord gave Israel into the hands of Babylon. There are moments when I watch the news or I look at what's going on in our culture. Maybe you guys are like me. Are you ever tempted to think like, what's God doing? It just doesn't appear that he's winning. Like, does God see? And here's the only thing that I would tell you. God is in control of who is in control. You're aware of that, right? God is in control of who is in control. This transfer of power between the nation of Israel and the nation of Babylon. And by the way, as it relates to Babylon, I can make an argument from the book of Revelation that Babylon is the most wicked, dark culture that has ever existed on the face of this planet. And Israel falls to this wicked nation of Babylon. But don't miss it in the text. The Lord gave Israel to Babylon. God is always in control of who is in control. So Daniel's caught in the middle of this turmoil. He's probably at this time in his mid to younger teens. Look at verse 3, some of the cultural pressures that he's confronted with. It says, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, use without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So what's going on here is Daniel is taken captive. He's taken to Babylon. He is from a family of nobility. He's upper class. He's known all the privileges that the nation of Judah could afford him, but now he is forced into slavery. And it says in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So let's just review what's happened to these young men. They've been taken from their families. Daniel will live his whole life in captivity. He'll never get back to Judah. They're taken from their families. Any hope of future family is taken for them because they're made eunuchs. And you're like, oh, I didn't see that in the text. Well, let me give you a clue. If your boss is called the chief of the eunuchs, I don't think that's a huge leap. So any future family or progeny, that's taken from these men. Any career choices are taken. They're placed into the king's service. They have now become slaves. They're given the king's food. They have no choice of what they can put or not put into their bodies. They are re-educated. They are re-indoctrinated through their education. And I don't think that the Babylon history books were very favorable to the God of Judah or the nation of Israel. They're given new names, their identities stolen. All of their personal rights, all of their liberties are stripped. Look at how Daniel responds. This is in verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. So Daniel makes a stand. And of everything that's happened to him, the being put into slavery, being made a eunuch, being forced to serve the king and the re-education, he makes a stand over the food thing. Which is weird because that seems to be the only perk in his situation. The king ate good food. So, 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 so why make your stand? Why, why does the 
food thing become the thing of where you're going to object or where you're going to rebel? The, the question we've got to ask, it goes back to our big question. What was at the center of Daniel's conviction about the food? And I, and I would argue, if you look at the text, it was an opportunity to stand for God. See, the, the, the problem with eating the king's food was simple. For Daniel, being Jewish, God had given in Levitical law some dietary commands. There was clean foods and unclean foods, and Daniel was commanded in Leviticus that he should only eat a kosher diet, clean foods. What was at the being offered to him in Babylon was considered unclean. And so just know that his stand was not in his own personal interest. Like, like if he was making stands based off his personal interest, if his conviction was formed based off what was in his best interest, like, like he could have objected to a lot of other things. But no, he picks the one objection. He objects to the food because at the center of his conviction is he wants the favor of his God. When your convictions continually line up with your own self-interest, I would argue those aren't even convictions. That's just your point of view. And we've got to be careful what we consider when we form our convictions, what's important enough to form a conviction over. And Daniel is showing us, we're learning from this text, that we need to have God in the consideration of how our convictions show a light shine a light on the gospel, shine a light on our Savior. Those are the things worth standing for. How many of your convictions, how many of the things that you're willing to stand for are simply in your best interest? Consider your convictions. And then I want you to see something else, just how Daniel objects. I don't want you just to consider what they objected to, but how they objected. So if you're keeping notes, the bottom three points are kind of a subset of this first point, how to biblically protest or how to biblically object. So Daniel is purposed in his heart. He's formed a conviction that he will not defile himself with the king's food. Look what he does next. It says, then he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He asked. He didn't demand. He didn't rebel. He didn't go on a hunger strike. He didn't insist. He asked. And by doing it that way, his protest, his objection, actually becomes a witness. And in verse 9, it says this, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God blesses him. Why? Why did God bless? What was the mechanism that triggered God's blessing? Well, it was the conviction that he formed, and it was the way that he pursued that conviction and the way that he protested. They appealed. They didn't demand and I want you to see something. It's interesting in the text. It says that God gave them favor, but that doesn't mean that he took the obstacles out of Daniel's way. It says in verse 10, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigns your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? So, so basically the chief of the eunuchs, he says, Hey, I don't want to eat the king's food. And the guy goes, I'm not giving you another diet. I'm not going to get in harm's way myself. What if the king takes vengeance against me if this doesn't go well? What motivated his denial, even though he had compassion on Daniel? What was self-interest? He wasn't going to put himself in harm's way. So the first thing about how to biblically protest is just this. Appeal, don't demand. Here's the second. Daniel explores all options. He explores all options. Before just saying, well, okay, before caving, he says, is there another way? Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward 
whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel. So he goes to the next guy that would have the authority to grant him permission not to eat the king's food. And he says this in verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel is doing everything that he can to avoid the direct contact, uh, conflict. Listen, save your protest. Make sure, that your conv- uh, make sure the convictions that you form are for the only thing that matters. Save your convictions when you're fighting on behalf of the Lord and on behalf of the gospel. Again, Daniel's negotiating against himself. The king's food was great. He asked to eat vegetables for 10 days. Who does that? Vegetables. And then he says, test us after 10 days. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 14. The goal in all of this was God's favor. So the the man that he appealed to, it says he listened to them on this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, get this, and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. So at the king's table, you've got all the richest food in the land, okay? And the wine. Daniel's drinking water and he's eating vegetables. And at the end of 10 days, just 10 days, that's as long as the test went, Daniel is viewed healthier and get this, fatter from eating vegetables. Explain that to me. Were the vegetables like, did they dip them in butter? Did they pour hollandaise sauce on them? Did they cover them with cheese? Like you can do some pretty good things to vegetables, right? But I don't think that's the case. If these young men, based off their conviction, went to this test, the only way it worked is if God showed up, right? And God shows up. And he shows them favor. Here's another thing I want you to see. This blessing of God because of the stance that they made related to the food with God at the center of their conviction, that blessing flows into all other areas of their life. Verse 16 of Daniel 1. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were were to drink. They got what they wanted. And he gave them vegetables, whatever. Verse 17. As for these four youths, get this, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God blessed them beyond what they asked for because they were willing to make a stand for the things that really matter so that they could serve their God. Form a conviction, point one, flip over to Daniel chapter three. Here's the second one. Embrace either way faith. Embrace either way faith. So here's what's going on in Daniel 3. Uh, the, the setting has changed. Now these four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are in service to the king in Daniel 3. Daniel's not there. This is a test of the other three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What's going on is Nebuchadnezzar has set up an idol. It says that it's nine feet wide, 90 feet tall. He set it up on the plains of Dura, and he is told everyone in his kingdom, that when you hear the instruments play, you need to bow down to this statue that I've set up. Now, now we don't know what the statue was of. Some have argued that it was of a Babylonian god. Others have argued that it was actually an image of Nebuchadnezzar. Some scholars have even contemplated it might have been a chocolate punny. We're not sure. Okay? And the fact that you guys got that joke (laughs) means that you know this story 
because of a cartoon with animated vegetables, which is just scary to me. I'm just going to throw that out there, okay? So, so we don't know what it was, but every time the music played, you were to bow down to this idol that was set up on the plain of Dura. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, they were caught in a bind. Did they have a conviction? See, see, see this was important. This bowing down to this carved image, that's like, goes against commandment one of the big ten, the ten commandments. You shall have no other God before me. You should not make a carved image. You shouldn't bow down to that image. So once again, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego making a stand, but what was at the center of their conviction was loyalty and devotion to their God. So they don't bow down. It says the, the text says that the Chaldeans come to the king, and they say, oh, king, live forever, and they rat out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's interesting in the text it says this, verse 8, Therefore, at a certain time, the Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Maliciously means to hate without cause, to devour. And I'm fully aware that in this room, there are followers of Jesus Christ who are maliciously viewed by family members, by coworkers, and others in our community because of your stance for the gospel this is not new to us, and you are not unique. When you make a stand for the gospel, there are times where you are going to be hated for that conviction. And they go to the king, and it's interesting the way that they posture their argument to the king. Verse 12, they say, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, the Chaldeans, they bring the charge against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they go, this is about you versus them. They defy you, O king, because they won't do what you've commanded. And I want you to look what Nebuchadnezzar does next. It's interesting to me. He calls them in. It says that he was in furious rage. He gives them another chance. He goes, I'm going to play the music one more time. If you bow down, everything's going to be well with you. Then verse 15, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Listen to this next phrase. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? See, they said, this is about you, king. And the king immediately says, no, this isn't even about me and them. This is about their gods versus my gods. The conviction that they formed was all about their devotion to their God. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized it right away. Listen to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 18, but if not, what they're saying is this, either way, God can rescue He's in control. He is in control of those who are in control. And he can choose to rescue us from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. See, that's a conviction. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that when we formulate our convictions, we need to stand by our convictions because the world is watching. They say either way. 
We're not bowing down. Think through your convictions carefully. If you form one, make sure you're willing to carry it through. It's interesting what happens next. Verse 24, I'll jump down there. The men are thrown into the fiery furnace. It says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Didn't we cast three bound into the fire? And they answered and said to him, True, O king. They can count. Verse 25, He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And, their appear- and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. I don't have time to develop this fully, but let me explain to you. There's three men that were cast into a furnace, but when the king Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he sees an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ in the fire, in the middle of these men's trial, right there in their midst. God shows up in a big way. Next thing the king does is he says, hey, get those guys out of the furnace. He goes, hey, Rackshack and Benny, get out of there. Okay. I want you to see this in Nebuchadnezzar's response. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, what was the motivation behind these men defying the king's mandate to bow down? Was it self-interest? Was it personal rights or obedience to God? And listen, I know some of you are wrestling through this right now teachers in public schools, people in the medical profession. There is a myriad of circumstances right now that are weighing on your minds where you're trying to decide, should I do this? Should I not do this? I'm being forced to do this. Is it right? Is it wrong? And I would just say, who is in the center of your conviction? I understand that as followers of Jesus Christ right now, we are having to go through difficult decisions of what we are willing to do and where we need to take a stand. Here's all I would say from Daniel 3 and Daniel 1. Make the stands that will bring God's favor. Make the stands that bring glory, not just to you, but to your God. One more, Daniel 6. As we jump to Daniel 6, Babylon has fallen. The Medes and Persians are in control. They they now are the superpower of the world. Daniel is probably 80 years old. Daniel has been in service to foreign and pagan kings his entire life. And the scene that is unfolding at the beginning of Daniel 6 is this. Daniel is being promoted to the second in command under King Darius. It's pretty amazing. And all of his competitors, all of his political rivals, they're like, this isn't cool. We got to find some fault with this guy. But they can't find any fault in Daniel related to his conduct, his character, or his political service. So they said, we're not going to find a problem there. The only way that we're going to get Daniel in trouble is in connection with his convictions as it relates to his worship of his God. See, Daniel had a testimony throughout his life. So they approach King Darius. They come up with this great idea. They say, hey, Darius, we've got this great plan. For a period of time, I believe it's 30 or 40 days in the text, he says this. He says, "Um, nobody gets to bow down and pray to anybody but you. Darius is like, that's an awesome idea. What a great idea. He goes, I'm going to put that edict into writing. And then they remind him. They say, "Don't, don't forget this, Darius. Once you write it down, even you don't have the power to change it. The Medes and Persians viewed their ruler Darius as part man, part God, and even he couldn't go back on the things that he commanded. 
So the edict is signed. Look at what it says. Verse 10 of Daniel 6. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. (laughs) So you can't pray to anyone but Darius, and the minute the edict is signed, what does Daniel do? He goes home and prays with the windows open. Some key words here like he always did. Third point is you consider how to survive in a culture that has become anti-biblical. The time to prepare is now. The time to prepare is now. Daniel went back and he did what he had always done. He'd formed habits. He went back to his pattern And here's what I would say, when the moment of crisis comes, when we are put to the test based off our beliefs and our religious convictions, not just our personal rights, but our beliefs and religious convictions, you're not going to become a super follower of Jesus Christ in the moment. If you're going to have success in the the crisis, you better develop the disciplines in the process. Daniel went back to what he always did. Every good coach knows this. You come to the end of a basketball game and there's just a couple seconds left on the clock and you've got a kid that's going to the free throw line and he's, your team's down a point and he's at the front end of, he's got to make a one-on-one situation. You don't want that kid to be the kid that blows out of practice every day and doesn't practice his free throws. The guy that you want on the line in that moment is the gym rat who shoots 100 free throws after practice every day, who can make them with his eyes closed, who has developed the discipline of practicing free throws to the point that it's muscle memory. As we're watching our personal liberties and our freedoms being diminished in this country in the name of the pursuit of freedoms, please understand that all of this is precursor to a potential erosion of our religious freedoms that lie ahead. When that day comes, if you're going to have a conviction, if you're going to stand in the moment of crisis, you better develop the disciplines now. The time to prepare is now interesting so Daniel is then ratted out he's thrown into the lion's den I like what the king says as he puts him into the lion's den he says this he says may your God I'm reading from verse 16 may your God whom you serve continually deliver you Daniel already had a witness with this king so the king goes home he can't sleep all night he rushes back to the lion's den the next day to see what happened to Daniel wasn't that hard to figure out was it says this, and he came, to the, he came near to the den where Daniel was. The king cried out in a tone of anguish. Uh, then the, uh, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel cried out from the lions in verse 21, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I, have found, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. I want you to see the result. Daniel wasn't just spared from the lions. His witness impacted a culture. Look at how Darius responds, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you, 
Verse 26, and I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never come to an end. So here's the point of the message. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to form convictions. Let's just be very careful who is at the center of those convictions. Is it a testimony for our Savior, Jesus Christ, or are we making convictions that are only in our own self-interest? And I know some of you are saying, like, I don't like this. I'm going to be writing in some questions. There's direct teaching throughout the New Testament that would validate everything I said. You can check it out in Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, or Titus 3. Those are three passages where you can start. But here's the thing that I would ask you today. If you want to proof check the things that I'm telling you, here's the easiest and best way to do it. Look to Jesus. Selflessness incarnate. Jesus emptying himself of everything that he was due him, his God in heaven, to come down and take human form. And not just to live among us, not just to live like us, but to be obedient even to death. Death on a cross. The followers of Jesus follow the example of the person they're following. I close with this, 1 Peter 2, verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's pray. Father, I would just pray that we would have the courage to trust in Christ alone. It is in the name of your Son, our Savior, our example that we pray.